Good morning. My name's Liz Gray, and I am the pastor here at rector here at Incarnation, and I'm so glad that you're here worshiping with us both online and in person. And so first of all, I just wanted to uh, say to the kids, I don't know if any of you have ever taught anyone to do something. Um, you know, maybe you've taught someone how to ride a bike or how to play a new game or how to draw a particular type of picture. And week by week, I've actually seen you guys, sorry, I'm just going to move this one more time, um, doing that with one another. And, you know, there are moments where I have watched you reaching out to another child or even a grown-up. And there are some epic moments, like remembering John uh, bringing his snake to church and helping us all touch it. I mean, that was an unusual and unlikely way of us learning something new on a Sunday morning. But I wonder what you would like to learn today or whether what you would like to teach someone today. There are lots of ways of learning and teaching. Maybe you could ask someone to teach you something today. Some things we learn by being taught and some things we just pick up on. And so really the ser sermon series that we've been doing, Imitate Me, arose out of this idea that each of us has had mentors, has had role models, has found people in life who have taught us specific things as we go along. There are also other things which we simply pick up a little bit like babies learning their native language. They learn it by babbling and then by imitating their parents. So there are lots of ways that we imitate. But often, the process of learning from somebody else is one of the quickest ways and one of the easiest ways to learn a new skill. And so when I was thinking about how to wrap up the sermon series today, I looked at the lectionary and I was delighted to see that um, actually this week is the week where many uh, streams of the church and in fact Islam remember Elijah. July the 20th was, is kind of Elijah Day. I suppose Saint Elijah Day if you're into saints. And so I thought, well, what a perfect story, actually, to end our Imitate Me series. Mainly because the story of Elijah and Elijah are so odd, to be honest, so curious, so unusual, so kind of unexpected. Now, I don't know if you've read 1 and 2 Kings recently. They books in the Old Testament quite near the beginning, and it's a time when Israel and Judah had a whole succession of kings. And unfortunately... Quite a lot of them are described as bad kings. X, son of Y, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And at chapter 16, we're introduced to one of the worst, Ahab. He was a bad one. And so in verse 29, it starts off, when the 38th year of King Asa of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. Ahab, son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, they're certainly not exempting his father from some kind of responsibility around here, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And once he's been made king, he goes on and he does worse things. He picks a terrible wife, Jezebel. He serves other gods. He serves Baal. He erects altars to Baal. He makes a sacred pole. And in fact, in 1 Kings 16, it even says he did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than had all the kings of Israel who were before him. Goodness, what a terrible, terrible review of his life. Just the worst. And truly, it's still going to get even worse. But then right at the beginning of chapter 17, verse 1, we hear this. 
Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Elijah kind of pops up out of nowhere. He just suddenly appears and starts kind of talking about the word of the Lord. He suddenly starts saying how God is going to punish this land because of the poor leadership that there is in it. Just think for a moment. What an opportunity for Ahab. Here is a man of God turning up before him and talking to him about what God is going to do and going to say. Any sensible person might have turned to him and said, oh my goodness, that sounds really terrible. Can you help me to avert that? What might I do that could, I, how do I change? What should I do that would make this not be such a terrible outcome for my country? But instead, Ahab doesn't do that. He doesn't ask any questions. He's not curious. He doesn't want to learn. Instead, he rejects him. He rejects his counsel. And this three-year drought comes to happen. And the rather thorny relationship between Ahab and Elijah begins. Over the next few chapters, there are lots of stories of Elijah, which are well worth, if you, you know, if it turns out to be a rainy afternoon, curl up on the sofa with one king's, and just read those stories at the end about the way that Elijah then operates in the land. He does all kinds of miracles, kind of reinforcing his role as a man of God in that country. He does many miracles, things which fight back against poverty. He feeds people. He brings people back to life. He has an extraordinary encounter with the prophets of Baal. He confronts Jezebel, this bad queen. He really goes for it. He doesn't hold back. He speaks out. He announces what God is wanting to say to the country. And then pretty much he gets exhausted. He reaches what we would now describe as burnout. He's absolutely done, and he just wants to die. And God comes, and he sends a raven, and he feeds him, and then he sends, takes him to Mount Horeb. And on that mountain, Elijah has what's the fancy word is a theophany, a real encounter with physical work God. And God comforts him and gives him new hope, and he gives him a whole new set of instructions. And actually, part of the hope that God gives him is he says, I found you a successor. It's going to be okay. You're going to be able to just pass on the things that you have learned and done. You're not in this alone anymore, Elijah. I found someone to do this with you. And so he says, you shall, he tells him to go and anoint some kings and stuff. And then he says, and you shall anoint Elisha, very specifically, son of Shaphat of Abel Meholah, as prophet in your place. Elijah has fresh hope, fresh motivation, and off he goes. And at the beginning, at the middle of Kings, 1 Kings 19, he goes off and he finds Elisha. And Elisha seems to come from a fairly wealthy family, but he's out there and he's plowing his oxen, and there are 12 yoke of oxen ahead of him, and he's with the 12th. Now listen to this, because it's, it's really, I don't know, it's kind of a ridiculous story. Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle over him, his cloak, his kind of sign of authority. So Elisha leaves the oxen and he runs after Elijah and says, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And Elijah says to him, go back again for what have I done to you? I mean, it's not exactly invitational. It's, it's, I feel like his kind of job recruitment skills are sort of lacking. But anyway, Elisha obviously takes that as a very warm welcome and he goes back 
and he takes his yoke of oxen and he slaughters them. He uses the equipment from the oxen to cook. He boils the flesh, gives it to the people, and they ate. And then he set out and followed Elijah and became his servant or his disciple. Honestly, there's not a lot that is appealing about Elijah at this point, but I'm also kind of curious about Elisha's response. Part of me was sort of horrified when I read that story, and I thought, why not give your yoke of oxen and your plow to someone who needed them? You know, why, why burn and cook? I mean, oxen, aren't they more valuable as oxen than as meat? But perhaps there are moments in our lives when we need to make a symbolic act, a time of saying, this part of my life is done. He cooked his oxen, literally. So both of these two men were very deliberately making changes in their lives as they obeyed God. And so Elijah becomes Eli Elisha becomes Elijah's disciple. And for the next years, and it's unclear exactly how many, he follows him. He imitates him. He learns from him. There's so many things that he gets involved with as he sees Elijah acting out in this role of prophet to the nation. Elisha stuck really close to Elijah. And then eventually when Elijah's an old man, that story that Megan read so beautifully occurs. Elijah knows he's about to die. He asks Elisha what he wants and he says, I want double what you've got. Whoa, okay, right. Be just modest in your requests. What a great, great thing to ask for. And so eventually Elijah's whisked off to heaven in this uh, chariot and the horses of fire and he drops his mantle or cloak to the ground as he leaves. Elisha picks it up and moves forward. Elisha then becomes the man who is talking out as a prophet to the nation, speaking hard truths to kings and authorities, confronting evil, confronting the things which were going wrong in his, the society. And his name is also remembered as a man who was faithful to God's call on his life. And he had asked for a double portion. And in fact, in 1 Kings, it, it talks about double the miracles for Elisha. And one of the things I really appreciate or find fascinating about the story is that many of the miracles that Elisha did were actually kind of copies of the ones that Elijah had done. He really did learn very specific things and very specific ways that God would act. So we also see him with feeding widows and bringing people back to life and miraculous provision and speaking truth to the kings. It's a very curious story. And it's kind of hard to pin down, except for the reminder that God was very clear with Elijah. He told him exactly what to do who to call to imitate him, and the period of training was clearly vital. And Elijah clearly expanded Elisha's mind and experiencing by asking him to see the ways that God could act and be at work. Elijah responded by an increase in his own spiritual boldness as he stepped into the things that God was calling him to. Elijah had shown that he relied very closely on the word of God, and Elisha had to do the same. Both of these men were called by God, and they were called to listen to him and then to act. And really throughout scripture, we could have picked a number of stories to talk about this whole role of mentor and mentee, this idea that God gives us to, of following on from somebody else and learning from them. 
And Nancy actually read another story, which is kind of curious. This one of Paul and Barnabas falling out over whether John Mark should go along with them. Paul and Barnabas already had a history of working together, and Barnabas had already been learning how to how to follow God by follow Jesus by how to follow Paul. And then one day they have this argument. Paul decides not to take John Mark. Barnabas disagrees, and so Barnabas goes off to Cyprus, and Paul chooses Silas, and he goes off to Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. These four were all men called by God, all men who were doing their best to deliberately follow God's, follow God's call in their lives. But they were people, and complicated people. And each of them had places where they needed to grow in their character and in their maturity. But their behavior revealed places in their interior worlds, in their characters, where they needed to mature, where they needed to pay attention. <coughs> where they needed to listen more closely to the call of God. But they land up arguing and changing directions, and they go on, and as God calls in other people, he calls in Silas, he sets up different leadership streams. God, no doubt, continues to help each of these men in their grow in their understanding of God and of themselves. Elijah, Elisha, Paul, Barnabas, John Mark, Silas, all called by God, all very fragile, messy human beings. And we're all messy. But we all also, I hope, want to be less messy. And whether we are imitating or being imitated, we need to be sure that as we act, that our behavior is flowing out of our character, that our interior and exterior worlds are aligned, that we are listening to the Holy Spirit before we act. And this combination of character and behavior is so crucial because we want the behaviors we imitate to be coming from people of consistently good character. But as we listen and watch the world, we are so aware that it's possible to be a person whose behavior looks great on the outside but is not supported by being a person of character on the inside. And this eventually shows it's an impossible imbalance. Recently, we've been hearing a lot about leaders who have started strong and who have failed dramatically in their behaviors. Simon and I re recently listened to the series of podcasts about Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll. You no doubt have read about Bill Hybels or Ravi Zacharias or a couple of years ago about Jean Vanier. Or perhaps you've read in the news about people like Jerry Sandusky or Larry Nassar in the sports world. And sadly, we could go on naming names. People who have failed in their calling to be the people of character they should be if they are to be imitated. And these are all people whom thousands have learned from, thousands have imitated. But for these people, their internal and external worlds at some point did not align their characters eventually did not support godly behavior in significant areas of their lives. <coughs> Part of me wonders, where were the Elijahs in their life? Who were the people who perhaps were speaking out to them and they were ignoring? What was the role of the Holy Spirit in calling them to pay attention? This week in my letter from Liz, I talk about my father, who was also a preacher and teacher but whose character had a deep flaw. 
whose public behavior did not cohere with his private behavior. Someone I wanted to imitate instead became someone who violated and harmed me. And perhaps you have people in your life whom you have longed to imitate, but instead who have turned on you with betrayal and harm. And I passionately believe that the Holy Spirit was speaking to my father, was pulling him to better behavior. And I totally believe that he ignored that still small voice. So what did Jesus do about the fact that he was dealing with complicated, messy people? Because Jesus called his disciples one by one, including Judas. He called them deliberately by name. He invited them to imitate him. He showed them how to love God. And his disciples learned and ma what mattered to Jesus and how to respond to people. And they learned about character, which underlies behavior. And that's why we read that passage from Matthew earlier in the Beatitudes, when we looked at what Jesus taught his followers to do, how he told them to pay attention to their characters. Listen again to some of the things he suggested. He said, be poor in spirit. Be people who can mourn and grieve. Be people who can be meek and not retaliate with anger. Be people who hunger and thirst with that kind of, I'm starving kind of hunger for righteousness. He reminded them that they were people who needed mercy as well as to be merciful. Jesus spoke out against all the things that pollute our hearts and break our characters. He told them to resist behaviors which lead to hearts that are dark and broken. He told them who is blessed. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. These are the type of parameters for character out of which good behavior can flow. Jesus then spent the next three years of his ministry showing how this worked in practice as he invited his disciples and followers to come along with him and to see how to make those things happen, how to be meek, how to look for healing, how do you demonstrate what it's like to be followed by someone who will betray you. After the Last Supper, Jesus prays for his disciples and he prays that God will sanctify them. And even then, he prays for Judas. Jesus knows there's a battle for each of us in our spirits and in our characters. He knows that there is a war as we let our characters be formed by him. And he gives us the Holy Spirit and he promises to intercede for us. Perhaps you have betrayed or been betrayed by someone else that you have wanted to imitate or be imitated by. Perhaps those places are still raw and sore within you. But you too are called to follow Christ. You too are called to be sanctified. And so we have to choose carefully who we want to imitate. And then we have to pray for them regularly. We have to not excuse bad behavior. We have to call it out. We have to speak up. We too have to be Elijah's and Elisha's into our culture, into our community, into our families. Elijah's main job, well, it was kind of to do miracles, but mostly it was to confront Ahab, not to let him get away with being a simply terrible human being. 
All those other miracles, they kind of flowed out of that calling. And the same for Elisha. These men were pointed to point out that character gap in their leaders. And we called to call uh, speak out against corruption. We called to speak out against poverty and injustice and weak leadership. Those are things we have a responsibility to. But as we draw the series to a close, I want to also focus on the fact that we've talked about eight, over eight weeks, about a number of people. And you've got a list. I gave you a little handout, and there's a reminder then of the people that we've talked about. And these were all deliberate stories about deliberate real people, not fiction. We've talked about Anglicans, biblical characters, a church father, a Catholic priest, men and women, people of different ethnicities and cultural contexts. And all of these were people that we see something in them which is worthy to be imitated. Perhaps they are people who've prayed well, who've read the Bible well, who've served the poor well, who've built friendships well. And they are people that we can imitate in the things that they have done well. Each of these people chose to follow Christ and they wanted to do so with deliberate care. And they've chosen to be vulnerable in the ways that they are imitated. They've chosen to share their lives and experience a willingness to be open to how God is working. And each one of them has shown a degree of focus as they've shown that element of Christ-likeness. But even all these people we've talked about, they're not perfect, they're messy. I'm not really a great one for saints. They're people who got some stuff right, but I'm sure they also got things wrong. And so shortly, we're going to take a moment with the choir are going to sing, and we're going to look perhaps at this list of pe people. And I've given you a couple of columns there, and you might want to take some time to put some people in the columns who you've learned from and be grateful for them and take a moment to pray for them. And I've put their behaviors, things like learning the Bible, most of the things we've talked about over these last eight weeks. But I also put there a few elements which I call more about character. And even as you think back to that list from the Beatitudes, perhaps you would like to add some areas into that list of characteristics and things of character where you want to grow. I read, read an article the other day. This is a bit of a diversion, but um, it was about the Beatitudes, and it was kind of funny. This guy's written a new book, and he's tied it up to the Enneagram. Don't ask me. Um, anyway, <laughs> but he was saying, you know, perhaps if you are a, a number whatever, I'm not very good at the Enneagram stuff, then you find it really easy to mourn or to lament. But perhaps if you're something else, you don't. And so he was kind of saying, there are some of the Beatitudes that we find kind of easy because of the ways that we're wired. But there are also some of the Beatitudes that we find really hard, areas of our life. So I invite you to maybe think back over that passage and to add some of the areas where you're struggling. <laughs> where do you need to learn to grow? And then perhaps you could think about people who you see who are exemplifying that trait and think, well, could I talk to them? Could I have coffee? Could I talk to them about it? But then there's this other column because this isn't all about how you grow. It's also about how you encourage others to grow. This is a community. And as a community, we want each of us to care about our behaviors and character. We want to be available to people to call them out when you see them make going wrong. But we also want to be people who 
encourage, that we call out in a good way the things that we see in people where we want people to bless and to be encouraged and to pray. And to... So if you see giftings around you in our community, where at the moment are you seeing people who are forgiving well, who are discerning well, who are asking boldly, who are welcoming with compassion? Maybe you could encourage them in those. We need to be humble about our own strengths and weaknesses. And we need to take courage. And we need to be strong in the Lord. Because we are called out to speak out, to be people of integrity. We're called to pay attention to our characters and our behaviors so that there is not a misalignment. We need to confront the evil outside and within our own hearts. I'm going to finish with a prayer by John Wesley. And I invite you to absorb this, and then as the choir sings, to maybe think about where you need to pay attention. Lord, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Let me be employed by you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low by you. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. Amen.